Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's great books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 200 of the great books over the next 10 years and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each of the great books. Today I'm going to cover Mythology by Edith Hamilton. This is book 36 for my 2023 reading list. Well, on Twitter a while ago, I I posted a photo of this book. I I bought it last year, and I posted a photo of it, and I said, should I read this before I get into the Greek writers? And one of uh, my favorite authors, she wrote back, her name is Karen Swallow Pryor, she wrote back with a simple yes. And so I decided to add this in kind of as a guidebook before I got into Homer, before I got into the tragedy, the Greek tragedies, the Greek comedies, and other works by Greek authors. And so this is this is the guidebook that, that I chose for those works. And I'm glad I read it because it was a fantastic introduction. It is a book that I'll, I will probably keep on my bookstand where uh, I, I don't keep much on there. It's just like the book I'm reading at the moment, uh, but I'll probably put it on there as a reference guide as I'm going through these Greek works. So this is this is a collection of all of the stories, of all of the myths from Greek legend, and it is a collection from a variety of writers. And I'm going to go through those in just a minute. But before I do so, I want to just share some of the things that Edith Hamilton writes in the introduction about mythology. And so here here are some of the things that, that I found really interesting. The Greeks made their gods in their own image. That had not entered the mind of man before. Until then, gods had had no semblance of reality. They were unlike all living things. In Egypt, a towering colossus, immobile beyond the power of the imagination to endow with movement, as fixed in the stone as the tremendous temple columns, uh, end quote. And then she goes on to say, you know, this this is what the gods of Mesopotamia were like. But then you, you come to Greek and th- Greece, and this is, this is a whole different conception. It's not these otherworldly monsters with different parts and stuff. It was just a very, a very almost human aspect to these to these gods. And so that comment, the Greeks made their gods in their own image, I thought was a very helpful way of looking at them from, from the start here. Here's uh, on the very next page, just a few other things I want to share. On earth too, the deities were exceedingly and humanly attractive. In the form of lovely youths and maidens, they peopled the woodland, the forest, the rivers, the sea, in harmony with the fair earth and the bright waters. That is the miracle of Greek mythology, a humanized world, men freed from the paralyzing fear of an omnipotent unknown. The terrifying incomprehensibilities which were worshipped elsewhere, and the fearsome spirits with which earth, air, and sea swarmed were banned from Greece. End quote. So that that was a very helpful just kind of introduction as to what what are we talking about here? What what are these gods that are in these myths? What are what are we what are we about to encounter? And so then he, Edith Hamilton, the author, she goes through and mentions the authors that she's pulling these stories from. And so this is what's really helpful with this book, it, it, because if you go to the actual sources of where these myths originated. Uh, oftentimes you'll just have part of the story. So maybe one of the gods will be mentioned, but you don't know 
perhaps where they came from, or you don't have all the context of the story. And so that's why this is such an important book and a, and a helpful book is because it, it, she collects these stories from these following authors. So first we have Ovid, who was a Latin poet. It wasn't, wasn't even in Greece. This, this was in, would have been in Rome. Um, but Ovid, a Latin po poet, and his book Metamorphoses is a compendium of mythology. What she points out, though, is that he did not believe in the myths. So, whereas the Greek writers, they believed in what they wrote, it, uh, according to her, and, and maybe some of the, the latter Greek authors didn't, but uh, she said you can tell that in, in the way they wrote. And, and the, the reason she starts off mentioning Ovid is just, he has such a great compendium of these myths, but... He, he approaches it as kind of a, of, of a non-believer. Non the next person she mentions is, is Hesiod. And I, mentioned, I covered him in a podcast just a few ago in the book Theogony, which is a seminal book in, in kind of the, the genealogy of the gods. So it's an important one in, in this realm. Um, but she mentions that Hesiod was a poor farmer with a hard and bitter life and that he wrote the Theogony, which is the genealogy of the gods. Next up, Homer. So we've got the Homeric hymns. So we've got Iliad and Odyssey, but then also there's these Homeric hymns that are that that cover a lot of the myths, and um, they were poems written to honor the various gods. After that, Pindar. And I just bought a book, the book of Pindar. I kept, I kept seeing his name come up over and over again. And so I added him to my great books list, but he wrote odes in honor of the victors of the games. So these would be the Olympic games, but he would tie a myth to each one of his poems. So there'd be a myth and then he would tie that to one of the, the, these human victors in, in the, the Olympic games. Next up is Os Os uh, Aeschylus, the tragic poet, and he was a contemporary of Pindar. And so he, he, uh, they say he's one of the, the greatest tragedy playwriters in, in history, if not the greatest. And I can't wait to read him. He's coming up on the great books as well. Sophocles, another tragic poet. Euripides, another tragic poet. And um, uh, Edith Hamilton makes the point that all of the tragedy plays, all, uh, actually all of the comic and tragedy plays of Greece, all have mythological subjects, except for one. And that is the one by Aeschylus that is about the Persians. So I'm looking forward to to reading those. Next up, Aristophanes, the cop, comic poet. And then Herodotus, who I covered in last week's po podcast episode, he was a contemporary of Euripides and Plato, and he uh, he referenced the myths quite a bit in, in the gods as he was uh, traveling around. The, then we come up to the Alexandrian poets. So these would have been poets who were based out of the... Egyptian city Alexandria. This would be Apollonius, Theocritus, Bion, and Moscos. Then we have another Latin poet who is Apuleius, and he he wrote the Cupid and Psyche myth, and apparently we wouldn't have that, or we wouldn't have it in full were it not for this Latin this Latin poet. And then Lucian, another Greek. We have uh, Apollod Apollodorus, who, uh, as Edith Hamilton said, is Greek, but dull. And so she didn't really enjoy reading him, but he did have some good information. Uh, Pos Pausanias, an ardent traveler, he wrote the first guidebook, and he wrote a lot about mythological events and where they happened. So within this guidebook, you point out where certain myths occurred. Virgil, the author of the Aeneid, he did not believe in the myths, but he wrote beautifully about them, according to Edith Hamilton. And then uh, Cutulus, and Horus were the last two. So these, she's 
compiling all of these authors and putting putting this book together in, into what they wrote about these myths. So the layout of the book is there. There are different. There are different parts. There's uh, there, there's kind of the introduction to the gods themselves. And, and what I did in the back of the book is I just made lists of these gods. So she would highlight the twelve Olympians, uh, the lesser gods, the Graces, the Titans, the Muses, and the Virgin goddesses. And then would would talk about some of the the others as well. And so uh, on one page in the back of the book, I just have kind of regular notes. And then on the other page, I just wrote out that was dedicated to the names of the gods, just so I, I have a reference as well, where I can just kind of go to the back of the book and, you know, who are the 12 Olympian gods? And, and, and then I, I know where I can look in this book if I need a quick refresher as I'm reading about them. So yeah, first we've got the introduction of the gods, then the, the most important myths, and then the most important gods she would, she would cover. There are three different chapters covering the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid. I actually skipped those because I didn't want to... I, I'm about to read those books, and I and it's been a long time since I've read them, like 20 years or more. So I, I did not want to have a refresher before going to the actual text. I'll probably return to mythology and read this after I've I've interacted with those those great epics. But uh, I did not want to have the spoiler alerts, even though I, I I should know the stories or probably know a good portion of them. I just, I, I, I want to be surprised when I, when I read them. So I, I skipped that. And then at the very end of the book, she goes into the Norse gods and I skipped that. I do have a lot of books on the great books list that are dealing with Norse gods. So I'll probably come back to that before I read those. This book was written in 1942. And I, I got an edition that's that's a little uh, older. Um, I got the, let's see, 1976 version, I guess. Um, but there is a new version of this book that is just beautiful. And I work at Landmark Booksellers in Franklin, Tennessee. I'm the business manager there. And we sell that book like crazy. I mean, people just love that book. So I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes as well. You can buy it from, from Landmark. But um, the, the, th- the other thing I really appreciate is in the back of the books, in, in actually within that new version, it's kind of within the books, there are these genealogical tables of the gods. So you'll see who came from who, and that's just helpful to know, you know, who was the father of who, who was the mother of who. And uh, so the, again, just kind of brings back that, that reference aspect of this book. This, this will be a helpful tool going forward. As for an initial response, um, this tied so many ideas and stories and gods and famous characters together that I, I love it. it. It's like, it, it, it like combined so many things that it, it was, it was helpful. It, I mean, even like the, you get the stories or, or the myths of why things are called certain things, like things you've heard of your whole life. Uh, why there's an eye in the, in the back of a peacock's feather, uh, just, you know, stuff like that. I, and I'll read one in the next, the next segment, uh, that, that talks about, the sunflower and where the sunflower came from and why it, why it follows the sun and, and stuff like that. So it's just, they're just like endearing stories. I mean, some of them are, are obviously disturbing and, and, and all that, but, but these, I mean, we hear these names all the time and we really should know these stories. I I'm kind of ashamed. I'm, I'm this old and, and, and just getting to these now. Uh, but I mean, you're hearing these names time. It, it's, it's good to know these stories. It's good to know, who came from who? What who? What God struggled with? What 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 God is in charge of? What? Uh, it's just it's just it's fun to know it. So, initial response: I just loved that aspect. I I I, I could just see things clicking 
in, that I didn't know or, or wasn't aware of. And then second, as I mentioned, this, this book will be a reference book going forward, uh, something I'll keep close by. As for reading stats, it is a 449-page book. I narrowed that down to 354 pages when I got rid of the three chapters on Iliad, Odyssey, Aeneid, and then the fourth chapter of the Norse gods. So it, was, it ended up being 354 pages for me. It took me nine hours and 46 minutes to read it over a six-day period. I am now reading The Greek Way by the same author, so Edith Hamilton. And that is another kind of introduction guidebook before I, I, I delve into the Greek authors. And that has been amazing. I, it's just incredible. So I high, highly recommend reading these two books if, if you're thinking of getting into the Greek authors. I'll probably cover the Greek way in next week's episode, but uh, suffice to say, Edith Hamilton is a great guide for your Greek reading. Two more segments of this episode. Second segment, I will cover three things that stuck out. And then in segment three, I'll cover the one thing, the one my one key takeaway from Mythology by Edith Hamilton. All right, into segment two and the three things that stuck out to me. So first is the the god Dionysus, and this is the god of wine. And I want to read a few things that I found very interesting about Dionysus. So the Greeks were a people who saw facts very clearly. This is Edith Hamilton here. They could not shut their eyes to the ugly and degrading side of wine drinking and see only the delightful side, end quote. So at the beginning, she's talking, the truth is that both ideas arose quite simply and reason reasonably from the fact of his being the god of wine. So on the one hand, you've got this joyous uh, wine drinking cheers men's hearts, uh, but then you've also have this dark side that it makes them drunk. It makes them do... Uh, terrible deeds and that sort of thing. And so you have this within the same God. And here's a poem that is, is written about Dionysus. The wine of Dionysus, when the weary cares of men leave every heart. We travel to a land that never was. The poor grow rich, the rich grow great of heart. All conquering are the shafts made from the vine. End quote. He was men's benefactor and he was man's destroyer. So you just kind of need to think about this, this God on, on both ends of those spectrums. And we all obviously all know that with, with alcohol, it, 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 it can lift the spirit. It can, it can, uh, can almost take you out of your body for a, for a while, but then it can also lead to, to mass destruction of, of your life. I want to read two paragraphs. I ask you to stick with me on these, but these are so rich. These are about Dionysus. So again, we're talking about uh, the God here. Under his influence, courage was quickened and fear banished. At any rate, for the moment, he lifted his worshipers. He made them feel that they could do what they had thought they could not. All this happy freedom and confidence passed away, of course, as they either grew sober or got drunk. But while it lasted, it was like being possessed by a power greater than themselves. So people felt about Dionysus that, as about no other God, he was not only outside of them, he was within them too. They could be transformed by him into being like him. The momentary sense of ex exultant power wine drinking can give was only a sign to show men that they had within them more than they knew. They could themselves become divine. End quote. And I'm going to go right to the next paragraph here. To think in this way was far removed from the old idea of worshiping the God by drinking enough to be gay or to be freed from care or to get drunk. There were followers of Dionysus who never drank wine at all. 
It is not known when the great change took place, lifting the God who freed men for a moment through drunkenness to the God who freed them through inspiration. But one very remarkable result of it made Dionysus for all future ages the most important of the gods of Greece, end quote. So there you see this, this transfer taking place from, from being this, this kind of debauched God to a, to a God that, that creates inspiration. Um, the very next page Edith Hamilton says that the very best works we have were written for Dionysus. So here we've got the greatest poetry in Greece and among the greatest in the world was written for Dionysus. The first tragic plays, which are among the best there are, never equaled except by Shakespeare, were produced in the theater of Dionysus, end quote. So you, you've got this, this power, this, this God that can inspire, but can destroy as well creating some of the greatest poetry we know. I just thought that was quite, quite interesting and, and uh, just puts a unique spin when, when uh, reading about when, when I'll encounter this God in, in other works. Now, n- to the next section, another deluge story. So if, if you've listened to some of the other episodes this year, you'll, you'll remember that I became quite fascinated when I read Gilgamesh and seeing that there was a flood story, a deluge story. This was many, many years before the Noah story would have been put, put down. And then as I've read more of these great books and books around like guidebooks around these great books, I've, I've seen the, this deluge story, this flood story come up in a variety of cultures. So I saw it when I was reading about the, uh, about India and I, and now it came up in this book as well. So there is a flood story involving Zeus and I'll, I'll read part of it here, but it's just, it's fascinating to me. So there's a, f- a few possibilities, like either w- one that maybe there was this huge worldwide flood that, that impacted all these different cultures and they all, they all write about it in, in some aspect. It could also be just that, um, you know, at, at that time you would have had to live close to a river and rivers can flood. And so maybe just in, in people's consciousness at that time, you, you always had this, this fear or this worry that, uh, that there would be some cataclysm clismic flood at, at, at any given time. And so maybe that's just kind of in the cultural atmosphere. But uh, it, it's it's fascinating to me. I, I always kind of thought the Noah story was would have been the, the original flood story, and, and that's not the case. And then it's in all these other cultures. So, so what do you do with that? I've, I've talked about that in other episodes. I, I may cover another book I read just on that topic uh, of looking at, at the, how the flood story is is handled in Gilgamesh. Uh, but yeah, I just, I just got fascinated, did, did a deep dive. So to see it again, come up here was, was really cool. So I'm gonna read a few things here. Um, there, uh, Edith Hamilton's talking about three different versions of how the creation of mankind happened. And she said in the third version, in the third story, men are descended from a race of stone this story begins with the deluge. And then she says, all over the earth, men grew so wicked that finally Zeus determined to destroy them. He decided to mingle storm and tempest over boundless earth and make an utter end of mortal man. He sent the flood. He called upon his brother, the God of the sea to help him. And together with torrents of rain from heaven and rivers loosed upon the earth, the two drowned the land. The might of water overwhelmed dark earth over the summits of the highest mountains. Only towering Parnassus was not quite covered. And and the bit of dry land on its very topmost peak was the means by which mankind escaped destruction. 
end quote. So uh, a, a few, a few of the of the gods, a few of the of the people were able to, I guess, be on the top of Parnassus and and not be destroyed by this flood, and that's what what kept uh, mankind going. But yeah, it was just interesting to see that it, the the flood was a result of Zeus, the the top god, and that uh, again, there's there's these. There's few people that that remain, but the 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 entire world is covered except for this this top peak of a mountain. Um, so yeah, I just I, I didn't know this. Uh, I, going into this year, I I, I kind of knew I had heard that there were deluge stories in other cultures, but I just had never read them myself. So uh, to see it again and to see it in, in Greek mythology as well, quite quite interesting. Last, I want to close out this section just reading one of the um, myths here, and this one's really short. It's just one paragraph, but this is how sunflowers came about according to this myth, and this is the myth of of Clytie. So here we go. Her story is unique, for instead of a god in love with an unwilling maiden, a maiden is in love with an unwilling god. Clytie loved the sun god, and he found nothing to love her in her. She pined away, sitting on the ground, out of doors where she could watch him, turning her face and following him with her eyes as he journeyed over the sky. So gazing, she was changed into a flower, the sunflower, which ever turns toward the sun. That's the end of that uh, that myth, but... um. There, there's so many like this. It just, it, they, it, it's people grappling with trying to explain how things happened, and and these, some of these myths came out of that, uh, ex- explaining things, and and so you just come across all these like fun things throughout this book, and I don't know, I, I, I don't think I'll ever look at a sunflower the same again. I, this story will come to my mind when I when I look at a sunflower, and it's just kind of a delightful thing to think about when when you see these things or you hear these names so uh this one aspect of the book i really loved is just something like that where you 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 hear a story of of how the sunflower how that flower turns its face toward the sun throughout the day now in a segment three in the one thing so with these episodes i like to to highlight the thing that i'm still thinking about uh and so usually it's not it's not something I've necessarily planned, but it's just something that uh, after reading it, it's it's the thing I keep thinking about. And what I found with this reading project is that if I can try to remember one thing from the book, I can usually do that. It's it's The problem is if I try to remember a bunch of things, I don't remember any of them, and then I, I have a trouble... Trouble recalling the book at all, but if I can just remember one thing, that will help me to remember remember that the book and actually some other things in the book as well. So that's kind of the idea behind this. Uh, it's not to try to extract one nugget and and you know live by it or something. But the one thing from from this book, and it's it's some I don't even remember where I read it, but I I came across it before getting into this book, and uh, the author was saying that the idea of guilt in the assaging of guilt, the handling of guilt is, is something that you don't find very often in, in literature. And I don't know if that's true, but I like these kind of statements because then I start thinking about them and looking for them. And so maybe I will be proved totally wrong by this, but it's, it's something that's on my radar. And so I'm, I'm looking for this now. Uh, do authors talk about guilt. We all have it. We all think about it often, things we've done. Like, what, what do you do with that? Uh, what, how do you handle that? What, what do writers have to say about that? And 
I, I found it interesting in the section about Hercules because Hercules was, was so strong that he would do these things and just, you know, sometimes on purpose, sometimes on accident would just kill people. They, they, they were in the way and he would feel guilt about this. And so at one point he's given 12 labors and they're called the 12 labors of Hercules. And these are kind of things to try to atone for, for what he's done. And he, he makes comments like he's ready to do anything that would make him clean. He's never tranquil and he's, he's never at ease. Hercules could not forgive himself and his thoughts turn to find some way of atoning. And there's even a part where, so like he does these 12 labors and then he, I, I guess there's this hope that that would, that would help. But, but after that, you still see this man grappling with the inability to forgive himself, the never being at ease, never being tranquil, uh, and, and always thinking of how he could atone for, for the things that he had done. And I, I found that interesting. You know, here's one of the strongest gods. You'd think if, if anyone, uh, it would be this, this character of, of strength that maybe through mind power or just, you know, thinking it a, a dumb thing to think about, like he would just get rid of it. He wouldn't have these thoughts anymore, but, but he's plagued by them throughout his life. And I found that fascinating. And that's, that's my one thing. So as I'm reading other books, I will kind of look out for that as well and just see if this, this is talked about, if it's uh, other gods or other myths are uh, talk about that as well. So quick recap here. I highly recommend this book. I, I usually suggest reading the source material first. So reading Homer or reading Hesiod or those first. But there are some books that are just helpful to give the lay of the land. And the picture I like to give is when I used to travel for work, I would get to a city and probably get there in the afternoon. And my colleague would pick me up and take me to the highest point in the city. And oftentimes that would be a restaurant at the top of a hotel or something like that. And then we could we could be up there and that person could say, here is the main square. Here, you're looking down at where we'll be tomorrow. Here is where this happened. Here's where that. Here is, is the next country over or something like that. And it just helps you position yourself. You, you, you know, the, the next day when you're in a car at street level and you're driving around or walking around, you, you know, you have a rough idea of where you are. I'm very bad at direction. So like that was the most helpful thing they could have done is just to, to get a lay of the land. This book is like that. It, it provides that and it accumulates a number of portions of stories into a whole. So even if you were to dive right into Homer, Homer's telling you about a God, but not giving you any of the context for just as an example. And so this provides some of that context. So when you go into Homer, now you know the story behind this God, or if you've forgotten that you can have this book nearby, do a quick refresh and, and, and that will help in the understanding of the Greek tragedies or the comedies or Homer or, or some of these other authors. So I'm glad I read this before I, I dealt I dove into the Greek authors and, and I would, I would suggest you do that as, as well. Um, and, 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 and the same goes with that, the book I'm reading now, the Greek way, just a really helpful informational tool before going into some of these books. Again, I don't like to do that too much. Just, I, I don't want my mind to be thinking along a certain line before going into these books, but there are some situations where I think they're helpful, and this, this is one of those cases. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you, especially if you've read books by Edith Hamilton. 
You can email me at eric at booksoftitans.com to let me know what you thought of this episode or the, or the other ones. Uh, reminder, to, you can buy this book from Landmark Booksellers. I will link to it in the show notes. And if you use Books of Titans coupon code, that'll give you 10% off. You can also follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter. And the website is website. The website is stock full of resources to help you find books and to create your own reading list. I also have my great books list posted there, updated as of a few days ago. I will be back in a week or two, and I'll discuss another book, probably the Greek way, from this year's reading list. Till then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out. Mm-hmm.